Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. I invited my good friend, a uh, pastor from Santa Barbara, to come and join and minister to us today. And I have known this guy, I think, uh, since he was like 14 years old. I'm not joking. So it's been like 20, 25 years. And, uh, and his wife, and gosh, I just love the way that he loves the Word of God, the way that he loves his wife and his kids. And uh, he's just a, they're, they're a breath of fresh air to us every time we get to hang. And he's a fantastic surfer. And so uh, we have a good time in the water goofing off. And uh, it's just, uh, there, there are people that you know that feel like home, and this is one of them. So would you guys welcome my good friend, uh, Pastor Ryan McGinnis. Good morning. Um, man, that was great, Serge. I just met you this morning, and I definitely experienced the joy of the Lord. And I loved all those plugs you gave for church. So good, right? And you know what? It's all true. It really is true. And um, to be known and loved by your church congregation is such a beautiful thing. Because you know what? When you know each other, you can pray for each other the way you need to be prayed for. You can love each other well. You can bear each other's burdens. So I 100% agree with Serge. And one thing in particular I liked that he said, he said, if you love someone, you serve them. That is beautiful. I'm gonna use that in a sermon sometime, right? It almost like Jesus teaches about that, right? Yeah, he definitely does. Um, well, my name is Ryan McGinnis. Um, I am a pastor at a church at Apostles uh, in Santa Barbara called Apostles. And um, I'm grateful to be here to um, worship Jesus with you, to open the scriptures with you. Um, I'm married, my wife, Taylor, back there. We're going on 11 years. We have four kids, and um, that's awesome. It's been fun. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be here for a few reasons. One, because I love Josh and Katie. Um, they're dear friends of ours. Um, the feeling's mutual. It is a breath of fresh air to spend time together. And um, I can say from experience that Josh is the same man in the pulpit as he is throughout his life throughout the week. He loves God, he loves his family, and he loves you. He loves the church that God's gifted him. So I'm thankful to be here to be able to, and I feel very honored to preach to you this morning. The other reason why I'm stoked to be here is because um, I feel very loved by you. And that may sound really weird, because you guys don't really know me, but um, when we replanted our church in Santa Barbara five years ago, um, it was the generosity of you Legacy City Church that helped get us off the ground. And so I have a very special connection to you because I know that you guys are a church planning church. You love Jesus and you wanna see the gospel proclaimed. And so thank you for loving us well. Thank you for helping us preach the gospel in Santa Barbara, that is a huge blessing. The last thing, like Josh said, I love, I'm, I'm thankful to be here because I love teaching God's word. God's word is amazing. It's his heart opened up to us. And he tells us of his love over and over and over again. And today is going to be no different. Now, uh, by a show of hands, how many of you like to be inconvenienced? Yeah, see, no one raised hand. You know what's funny is you guys have chosen to live in LA. And that tells me that some of you do like to be inconvenienced. Um, no, nobody likes to be inconvenienced. No one likes to be troubled. No one wants to be 
really burdened or bothered with circumstances that are unexpected or outside of their control. You know, we have our plans and we're really good at this, right? We, we make our plans, we schedule our days, we create these barriers to help avoid inconvenience. That's, not, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a wise thing. So we do things like check our map apps all the time. I did that this morning. Wanted to make sure I was here on time. Um, we order our food online, which makes it really easy to avoid the inconvenience of lines. Uh, for my family, we buy longer iPhone charger cables so that it makes it easy for us to charge and do our scrolling and not sit like awkwardly halfway off the bed while we're trying to get that. Maybe you guys have experienced that. So we do things to, to, to kind of like avoid inconvenience. We also do things that, you know, personally we're not super proud of, but, you know, we do things like maybe like pick the lane that's furthest away from the beggar on the side of the street to avoid the inconvenience of conversation or guilt tripping, to avoid the awkward interaction. Sometimes we'll like avoid hurting people in our lives, right? Because it's, it's an inconvenience at times to have to break away from our lives, break away from our plans, get emotionally involved, use our resources, our time, our energy, our relational bandwidth to get down and suffer with people. I think as humans with a sinful nature, that can be an inconvenience to us, right? Unfortunately, it can be an inconvenience. Now, don't get me wrong, it's good to plan and avoid inconveniences, but not all inconveniences can be avoided, nor should they be, right? This morning's sermon title is, I got really seriously quick, huh? You were like, we laughed, and now we're like, he's pulling us in. This morning's sermon title is, The Compassion of Christ. The Compassion of Christ. In our text today, we're going to consider a story that tells us something about the heart of Jesus towards those who are oftentimes seen or viewed as an inconvenience. In our culture, for sure, but in general, absolutely. We're gonna see Christ, his heart, his disposition towards sinners and sufferers. So as we study this passage, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will, number one, like stir our affections towards our wonderful Savior and lead us to worship him. And number two, I pray that as we drink in the compassion of Christ this morning that we see here in the text, that we are filled to overflowing so that we can extend the same compassion towards our spouses, our families, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow church members, that we can send the compassion of Christ towards anyone that God puts in our path throughout our life. Because you know what, church? We all need the compassion of Jesus, and we need it daily. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time where we can gather as the body of Christ and worship you. God, it is a privilege to be able to worship you publicly and free. God, help us never take advantage or help us, God, never forsake the gathering of the church. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us now. God, that you would use what I'm saying to minister to your people. And God, even the things that I'm not saying, Holy Spirit, God, pick up that slack. Teach us, encourage us, restore us, rebuke us, minister us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we're gonna continue in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm picking up where you guys left off last Sunday. So if you could please turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 34, and let us stand together and honor the word of God by standing and reading it, okay? I'm gonna read it to you now. So when you get there, please stand, and I will lead us in the reading. Matthew 20, 29 through 34. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now this is a, it's a very simple story, right? There's no parable to decipher here, which is nice. There's no hidden meaning to uncover. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus heals two blind beggars on the roadside, which is not uncommon of Jesus. In fact, it's, as you've been going through the Gospels of Matthew, if you know Jesus, this is pretty predictable, right? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus restore sight to the blind, heal lepers, make the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. We've even seen him do something as radical as bring back the dead to life. And these are only the things that were recorded for us in the Gospels. The Apostle John stated in John 21, 25, he said this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, Jesus has healed so many people in his earthly ministry, there aren't enough pages in the world to record all of the miraculous works that he's done. That's a lot of miracles. So the question then we ask is, so, so why is this one written down? What's so special about this one? What is God telling us here? Well, I think, the, I think there are many spiritual lessons to glean from this text. And we'll touch on a few of them this morning, but I think the main point of this text is really simple, actually. I think the main point of this text is that God is telling us once again why he sent Jesus into the world. To rescue us from sin. Now, this story, like many others, subtly exposes us to the filled to overflowing, compassionate heart of God. And there is no greater catalyst to worship, church, than seeing the heart of God on display in the compassion of his son Jesus towards broken people. 
towards us this morning. Now, if you're a note taker, I'm going to rattle off a few things that might be helpful. Um, if you're a note taker, there are three character groups here, right? We see them in the text. There's the blind beggars. We see two of them here in Matthew's gospel. There's the oblivious crowd. This is a large group of people who we will read and see are kind of oblivious to what's going on. And then we have the compassionate Christ. The story has four movements. We have the blind beggar's plea in verses 29 and 30. The oblivious crowd's rebuke in verse 31. We have the compassionate heart of Christ that we read about in verses 32 and 33. And then lastly, we have the healed beggar's response in verse 34. And because there's so much to talk about, I've narrowed it down to four points, okay? And I'll put them on the screen for you. I'll go ahead and give you a little preview of them. Number one, what we see here in this text is seek mercy while it can be found. Seek mercy while it still can be found. Number two, we're going to see believe in the Lord Jesus. Number three, faith articulated is faith demonstrated. And number four, this is going to be an easy one. This is the one we're supposed to, supposed to all kind of rest in. Point number four is just worship. Just worship. All right, let me give you some context. The context here is that Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to an end. Right after Jesus teaches the parable of the unmerciful servant in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem because the days are drawing near for him to be taken up. What that means is, is the days were drawing near for Jesus to be put to death on the cross. So the past few chapters here in Matthew, Jesus has been going from town to town, teaching, healing, ministering to the crowds while en route to Jerusalem. His face was set or directed towards the city of peace and he moves from town to town performing miracle after miracle, teaching the power and the authority and the wisdom and the amazing realities of God's kingdom. And as he's doing this, his popularity is growing. People are flocking to this man. People begin to mass and follow him. The last recorded miracle before our story today was the resurrection of Lazarus, excuse me. And the news about this miracle in particular spread like wildfire. Jesus has the attention of everyone. And for many, this was the sign that led them to believe that Jesus could be the promised Messiah. Wrote about in the prophets of old that this Messiah, Jesus could be the man who is going to come and save Israel from their greatest enemy and establish the kingdom of God forever. And you know what? They were so close in what they thought Jesus was going to do. And now he's heading to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel that is occupied by their enemy, Rome. So here the word on the street is that something big is about to go down, and they were right. The numbers of the crowd only grew as they begin to anticipate the coming of his kingdom. Jesus keeps talking about it, and the buzz is in the air. And as Jesus continues to make his way to Jerusalem, he and the crowd enter the beautiful city of Jericho. Now this city, Jericho, is a city described to be the city of palms. It was known to be an oasis. It was beautiful, a place that kind of held, from what I hear, a Southern California climate. So I guess what, what Palm Springs is to LA, Jericho was to Jerusalem. And now there are only a few towns in between Jesus and Jerusalem. So he is coming up quick on Jerusalem. Jericho is the last city 
that he will be entering and exiting, which means he's only roughly 15 miles away from Jerusalem, which gives him about a six to seven hour walk to this city of peace, to the city that eventually, days later, he will be killed. Now, it's not a stretch to say in this particular story that the cross was heavy on the mind of Christ. He has now foretold his death three times in Matthew's gospel, and now he is literally walking towards it. And he is unwavering on his mission to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the context. This is the setting for our story this morning. So let's go ahead and revisit our text and work our way through it. Movement number one, the blind beggar's plea. Matthew 20, 29 through 30. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Let's stop there. The scene is set here. Jesus and the crowd are exiting Jericho city gates. And as they do, we are told there are two blind men sitting by the road. These men hearing the commotion, they find out that Jesus is walking by and they go crazy. They start yelling for him to show mercy. Now this may be an interesting scene for us, but maybe not an unfamiliar scene, seeing how we live in Southern California, we're in LA, we have a huge homeless population. This is not super unfamiliar to us, but it also wasn't unfamiliar for Israel during this time. This scene was not uncommon in the ancient world because there would always be hundreds of beggars by the city gates asking for charity. These two weren't the only ones by the city gates seeing Jesus, but they were the only two who were bold enough to cry out. Oftentimes, beggars would position themselves by the city gates where the most foot traffic was. It'd be kind of like the equivalent of standing by the freeway on-ramp or off-ramp because with lots of flowing traffic, there's lots of opportunity to make money, to interact with people. So it was here that the pandered and pleaded for money and garments. But sitting here at the gates was not only good for money. It was also a place to hear good news. The city gates served as a hub to buy, sell, to discuss legal matters, to make purchases, and obviously to give and receive news. It was kind of like Twitter. <laughs> you guys got all the good information, both the bad and the good, but that's where you went to go get your, your news, get your information. Now, Remember, at this point, everyone has heard of Jesus. Everyone has heard about this man who's moving around the countryside, healing people. Everyone is interested, believers, skeptics, haters, everyone is talking about him. And obviously, these two blind beggars had heard about Jesus. More, more specifically, they heard about how he healed two blind beggars. This obviously was something that was a highlight for them, and it instantly brought them hope. If Jesus, this man, can restore sight to other blind men, this is our chance. And I imagine these dudes were close and they had community and they were egging each other on and they got all stoked and ready, like this is our opportunity. Now, of course, they had no way to get to Jesus before Jesus coming to Jericho. Adult beggars were usually cast out by their families because they were un unable to take care of them. It was seen as an extreme hardship that would drag the entire family down into poverty. So they were left on their own. These blind beggars couldn't make their way to Jesus before he came to them because they were impaired to the point where they just could not do that. They couldn't make the trip like most sick people would do 
to go to Jesus themselves to ask for healing. But on this particular day, the unthinkable happens. In the sovereignty of God, in his providence, in his perfect planning, this Jesus they've heard so much about is literally walking by them. Their one shot at regaining sight is here. It's now. And without hesitation or reserve, we read, these men cry out. And they cry out for mercy. Point number one, seek mercy while it can be found. Seek mercy while it can be found. Now, these blind beggars had one shot at this. And we know that because Jesus did not go back through Jericho. He went to Jerusalem. He died on the cross. But Jesus was near to them now, walking by them on the road as they sat close enough to cry out for mercy. And you know what? They went for it. They went for it big time. Now, I had this thought when I was studying, what if they thought, I'll just wait till next time. You know, I'll just like, let me give it a day. I'm sure it'll come back through. He's going to Jerusalem. I can at least me track him down later. What, what if they thought, I don't want to make a scene right now. I'm just going to like wait till another time. These men were not willing to take that chance. And there is a powerful and important spiritual lesson to be learned here. And that is this, just because Jesus offers mercy today does not mean that it will be available tomorrow. Just because Jesus offers mercy today does not mean it will be available tomorrow. And that's not because Jesus runs out of mercy. That's because none of us are promised tomorrow. None of us have the luxury of looking in the future and going, you know what? I'll commit my life to Jesus then. I'll cry out for mercy when I'm ready to actually have that life change. Isaiah 55, verses six and seven say this. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen. The gospel is only good news while it can be heard. And by God's grace, it can be heard today. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about, this Jesus that we're actually singing about. Maybe this is weird to you. Maybe you're just visiting or maybe you're just investigating. I'm not here to pressure you, but I'm definitely here to tell you God's word and tell you that Jesus is walking by right now. And he wants you to cry out for mercy. Maybe you don't know who we're worshiping this morning. Maybe you don't even know that you need mercy. But let me tell you this, okay? All have sinned. Every single one of us has disqualified ourselves from heaven by breaking relationship with our creator. Every single one of us have, has failed. We have disobeyed God. We've choose to ignore his commands and live in rebellion against our creator. We are dead in our sins, the scripture tells us. We are unable to save ourselves. We are blind and lost, and we need someone to save us. And God did that in his son, Jesus. God, filled with love and compassion and mercy, sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins. 
He went to the cross and he gave his perfect life so that we might live. He took our sin upon himself. He entered into our suffering and he gave us his righteousness. And Christ didn't just stay dead in the grave. He rose again, displaying his power over sin, over sickness, over death. And now if you put your faith in Jesus, if you cry out for mercy in God, he is quick to forgive. He wants to forgive us. Friend, if you don't know this Jesus yet, he's walking by right now. Cry out for mercy while mercy can be found. Now back to our text in verse 30. We read that verse 30 begins with the words, and behold. Now this is meant for us to take special note of something here. Behold is like, look, turn your attention here. There is something that our author here is highlighting. Now Bible commentaries agree this is not the circumstances. We're not supposed to be focused in on the blind beggar situation, nor is it their actions. The fact that they're yelling at Jesus, what they're telling us and what we see here is they're trying to call us, Matthew's trying to call us to focus our attention on what these men are saying, what they are articulating in, from the, in front of the crowd. And what they're articulating is this, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, <clears throat> pardon me. Sick people asking Jesus to have mercy on them is not out of the norm. We said over and over again in the gospels, even being called Lord in ancient times was not out of the norm for teachers or leaders or rulers, men who were well-respected like rabbis and honored. The real words to behold here is this title they give Jesus, which is son of David. What does this mean? The title Son of David refers to the promised Messiah, the savior that would someday come to establish his everlasting kingdom and deliver Israel from all our enemies. This is a big deal. There were already many who were hoping Jesus was the Messiah, but they were unwilling to confess it. And they were actually wanting Jesus to prove it even further. Even though many of these people were in the crowd experienced healing from Jesus, they saw his miracles, they were just not convinced. If you remember in, back in Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? Peter tells Jesus what everyone's saying. They say, Jesus said, Peter says, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. No one is ready to call him Messiah. The crowds were not fully convinced that this is who Jesus was. And even if someone in the crowd was feeling that way, everyone was too scared to actually proclaim it. Now, in contrast, these blind beggars weren't able to see anything Jesus did. They just heard about it. They were just hearing the good news of Jesus and their hearing, we read, produced just enough faith for them to acknowledge Jesus openly and publicly as the Messiah. I love that. Isn't that just standard upside down kingdom rules? I mean, these lowly beggars can't see Jesus, but they can see Jesus for who he really is, while the ones who can actually see are blind to it. It's just, that's how the kingdom of God works. The first shall be last. The blind are able to see. These men have spiritual sight above the rest, and their request for mercy serves as a beautiful template of what it looks like to enter into relationship with God. Point number two, what must we do to be saved? In the book of Acts, um, a man asked the apostle Paul, 
really important question in Acts 16.30. He asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. These blind beggars, they weren't theologians. They didn't spend their days studying the scriptures in order to identify the Messiah when he came. They couldn't, they were blind. They didn't even hear Jesus' teaching or see Jesus' miracles. But here's what they knew. They knew they couldn't help themselves. They knew they didn't deserve healing. They knew they needed mercy. And they knew that only the Messiah could give it to them. So when they heard the good news of Jesus, they believed and they cried out for mercy. And we see that Jesus heals them. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, verse 11, the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, it's not complicated. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know everything. You don't even need to have this huge mountain of faith. The author of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please him for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Notice what the author doesn't say here. He doesn't say it's impossible to please God without big faith. He is saying you just need faith, just enough faith to believe that God is God. You need to trust that Jesus can save you from your sin. Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. I'm convinced that saving faith can be even smaller than that. But it will and it must grow as we understand God's word. Here's the point I wanna make here. When a person cries out to God with whatever faith they have, even if that faith is weak, little, and incomplete, God is mighty to save. God is merciful. So we ought to teach and remind and encourage our friends, our family, our neighbors, what it means to believe in Jesus. Christians that we know who are just doubting their faith, we would encourage them that believing, recognizing the need for mercy and confessing Jesus as our savior is what it is to believe in God. Now, through the eyes of faith, these blind beggars saw Jesus for who he really was, but the crowd was spiritually blind to what is going on here. And they show their blindness in this next verse, Matthew 20, 31. This is movement two, the oblivious crowd's rebuke. But the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Let's stop. Now, we aren't told exactly why the crowd is trying to like silence these people. Um, it could be because Jesus was teaching while traveling. That wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to teach while he was traveling. So the crowd would come in very close to hear what the rabbi or the teacher is saying. It could be because the crowd thought they were being rude or disrespectful or annoying. There could have been plenty of reasons why the crowd sought to silence these blind beggars. But the bottom line is they didn't want Jesus to be inconvenienced by them. They didn't want Jesus to be bothered by them. They thought Jesus had bigger and better matters to attend to because remember, Jesus on the home stretch to Jerusalem, the crowd was convinced that if Jesus is the Messiah, some crazy stuff's about to happen in Israel. And so they wanna watch it. Jesus can't stop for you. Shut up, pipe down and get out of the way. This was the, the crowd mentality as these blind beggars are crying out for mercy. How ironic this crowd who 
presumably was made up of men and women who have heard Jesus' teaching on how they should love their neighbor, men and women who watched Jesus' heart in action as he healed the sick, fed the hungry, lovingly embraced the lost and the suffering. And here they are now assuming that Jesus was, or has, no time for these blind men. Do you see what's happening here? The crowd is so focused on what they want Jesus to do for them that the blind man, these blind men, their needs are just like not seen to them. And honestly, they were blind to their own real spiritual need for mercy as well. And this isn't the first time that the crowd's motive to be with Jesus had been twisted. In John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds came to Jesus asking to perform more signs. They just said, show us more. We wanna see more signs. Come on, keep popping them out. Keep doing your magic tricks. Let's see them. Jesus seeing through this calls them out in John 6, 26, as Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, they were looking for Jesus because they wanted more food. They didn't wanna see his mercy. I think we all know folks like that. Come to church for the donuts and the potlucks. I'm just kidding. I'm just, we want you to come, okay? It's totally fine. The crowd is blind to the mission and the heart of Jesus here. So they tried to shut these guys up. But I love this, the men weren't having it. They cried out all the more saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And it is here that we read that Jesus stops. I love these guys don't give up. They yelled even louder. How annoyed was the crowd? I mean, I could just see them scrambling or just like throwing their hands up or just being so frustrated. I was talking to my friend Vijay about this text and he said something concerning this part of the text that really ministered to me. And he said this, the real Jesus commends extravagance in our seeking. He doesn't condemn it. He commends extravagance in our seeking. He does not condemn it. And that's exactly right. In Matthew 26, remember the story of a woman who had an alabaster flask that was believed to cost as much as a year's wages. And what did she do with it? She broke it and she poured it all over Jesus's head. And those around her were looking, what is wrong with her? What a waste, what are you doing? I can't believe you're doing this. Jesus does not condemn her worship. He condones it. He celebrates it. He commends it. This is very similar to what we're seeing here. Jesus commends extravagance in our seeking and he doesn't condemn it. Point number three, or I should say movement number three is the compassionate heart of Christ. Matthew 20, 32 through 33. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be opened. Now in Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus stops and calls the men to himself. It's a little odd considering the fact that they're blind. You know, like they're probably like, come on, help us out here, come to us. But I think we have an understanding that the crowd was helping them get to Jesus at this point. They weren't telling him to shut up anymore. The rabbi's calling us, they're like, okay, oh shoot, we messed up. Let's get these guys to Jesus. But they find their way to him. He asked them what they want to do for them. Clearly they are blind and clearly Jesus knew they were blind and I believe clearly Jesus knew what they, wanted, what they wanted him to do for them, yet he asks them to tell them to speak out their request. And so one man speaks up, Lord, that their eyes be open. Point number three, faith articulated is faith demonstrated. Faith articulated is faith 
demonstrated. Let this scene this morning remind us today that God deeply cares to hear our prayers. He really does care to hear what's on our heart. Did Jesus really not know what these guys wanted? Of course he knew. But he wanted to hear it from them. When Jesus was teaching on prayer, he shares that our Father knows what you need before you even ask. This is Matthew 6, 8. And yet, Jesus continued to teach to make our requests known to the Father. Why? Why pray for things when God already knows what we want? Have you ever asked that question? Why pray when God knows? Well, let me give you two reasons. One, because God tells us to. <laughs> That's an easy one. That's like the Sunday school answer to the kids. <laughs> Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petitions with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God tells us to pray to him, make our requests, our requests known. Number two, because when we articulate our request to God through prayer, get this, we simultaneously exercise and demonstrate our faith that God hears, that God cares, and that God is able to answer. Think about it. Prayer is one of the most tangible expressions of faith. I don't know where you were before Christ, if you're a Christian today, but if you ever saw someone praying out loud, you're just thinking, what in the world? It's a tangible expression of our faith because when we pray, we have to, number one, have faith that God exists. We have to have faith that God hears, faith that God cares to hear, faith that God has the power to answer, faith that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And because we are made righteous in Christ, we're able to go before the throne of grace in prayer. We have to believe those things. So prayer is a, a very tangible expression of our faith in God and one of the most tangible expressions of our faith in general. So when we, excuse me, when we articulate our heart in prayer, what we're doing, church, is we're articulating or showing our faith in God. And when we do that, God is blessed by that. God is honored. His face lights up. He is glorified when his people have faith in him, when they trust him, because our requests communicate that we believe that God is able. He definitely is. These men articulate their need. They say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And by doing so, they display their faith that Jesus has the power to do what they ask. But also by doing so, they display their faith that Jesus actually cares enough to help them. And they were right. Matthew 20, 34. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. What a powerful sentence. That's the climax right there, right? Immediately he felt compassion. He reached out and he touched them. They immediately restored their sight. And you know what they did in response? They followed him. Point number four, worship. Point number four is just worship. Think about this church with me. Jesus, God incarnate, creator and the sustainer of all things, Lord of lords, King of kings. He took the time to look at these two poor blind beggars and was moved with compassion. Now in my study time, this detail of Jesus' emotions like really grabbed my attention. 
know, when you read God's word, it's so alive, it's active. And every time you read it, it's fresh and God's speaking to you. This morning, I feel like part of the fresh manna was that God was saying, focus in on here. Focus in on my son's compassion. Jesus, fully God and fully man, looked upon these two broken fringe outsiders and felt something. He felt compassion for them. Have you ever felt compassion before? Have you ever felt something that moved you to feel sorrow for somebody's pain, somebody's circumstances? Think about it for a second. Now, a quick Google search will tell you that compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate that. Not a bad definition. In other words, compassion is the feeling you get when you are made aware of someone's suffering, but it's not just a sympathetic awareness. It's an awareness that provokes you to do something to help them, to move in towards them and alleviate their pain. So just like pain receptors tell our hands to move away from the flame, compassion tells our hearts to move towards those who are in pain. Or just like when wind fills the sail of a ship to move it to its destination, compassion fills the heart to move us towards hurting people with acts of mercy. Have you felt that compassion? I believe we all have. We've all experienced loved ones, best friends, even complete strangers that we've felt compassion for. We've all witnessed someone mourning the loss of a child, cry through unwanted divorce, struggle through terminal illness, endure severe injustice, destroy relationships and their life through substance abuse, live with serious disabilities, caught in cycles of terrible depression. There's a lot of us here. I think a lot of us have felt that compassion for people in our life that have gone through things like this. And maybe you're feeling it now. Maybe the weight of somebody's burden is on you now. Many of us have felt it. Many of us have gone through this ourselves. Compassion is beautiful. Compassion is something given to us by God. It's very God-like. It's very divine. It's very Jesus-like. It's strong. It's an intense emotion that God has given us to help display his heart in the world as we Christians share compassion to those who need it, who are suffering. But as intense and heartfelt as our compassion for others can be, it has to pale in comparison to the compassion that Jesus feels here. It must pale in comparison to the compassion that Jesus feels towards those who are suffering for those who are lost in their sin. Now, I don't say that to discredit our compassion. I'm not trying to make us feel bad about how we don't do things like Jesus does, okay? That's just the reality of it. I say it to help us elevate and understand how amazing Jesus is, how wonderful his compassion is. Because you know what the reality of it is, is our compassion comes with sinful baggage. We, I mean, does it not? Our compassion can have a tint of sinful nature in it. We can sometimes seem compassion as inconvenient, right? We can feel it, but not want to act on it. We can act on it, but not really feel it. The fall has ruined our compassion and our emotions. It's diffused by sin. I like how author Dane Allen wrote on this topic in the book, Gentle and Lowly. He said, 
The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. He went on to say, fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. We don't feel as we should because we're sinners. I was uh, getting coffee with a church member and we saw this homeless man walk into the parking lot, young guy, no shoes, he had shirts tied around his feet. Um, this was a few weeks ago. And um, my, my friend Daniel and I, who was also pastoring in Santa Barbara, we just were moved with compassion. We said, we need to do something about this. Let's go buy him some shoes. So um, we went to Target. I was going through Target's line. And the one in Santa Barbara, it's not like the ones out here. They're small, okay? They're limited, um, but they're great because it's Target. Um, but that is limited shoe selection. And I mean, I thought, man, like, I don't want to spend this much money on shoes. This is what, I'm going to be honest with you guys. But whatever, the guy needs shoes, I'm going to do it. The guy also needed, because his feet were so cut up, he needed antiseptic, bandages, I want to get him socks. So I'm racking up this little grocery list and I'm just like, I'm moved with compassion for this individual. But as I'm like picking up this stuff to like serve this man, I'm just thinking like, I had this thought, this guy's going to take all this back. He's going to take all this back and make like 80 bucks. I'm being transparent with you guys. I had that thought in my mind. And I just thought, man, how ridiculous. I'm trying to serve this man in the name of Jesus. And just this tint of sinful nature just tries to creep in. My flesh acts up. And I just, I thought it was, I thought it was amazing to think, Jesus knows exactly my heart. He knows what I'm going to do with his grace, what I'm going to do with his mercy, what I'm going to do with his his hospitality, I'm doing with all of it. I'm the guy who takes stuff back when Jesus gives it to me. And yet he knows all of that and he continues to pour out his undefiled, pure, unfiltered, raw compassion on us. Is that not amazing? That's how much compassion Christ has. And he has it towards you and me. Over and over again, we see in the scriptures, his compassion moves him towards the sinner, not away from him. His compassion helps him to look past how people respond, and he just acts out of his heart. He heals the sinner, the sick, the, he takes care of the alien, the sojourner. He meets the social outcast and the sorrowful where they're at. He takes care of those who are on the fringe of society, and he just meets them with compassion. You guys are in Matthew, so you've seen compassion has compelled them to heal the sick in Matthew 14, 14. Feed the hungry in Matthew 15, 32. Pray for the lost in 9, 36 and heal the blind men in chapter 20. Church, compassion never ceases to flow from the heart of Christ as he encounters broken people. And you know what? That's good news for every single one of us here and for the world that's hurting that needs Jesus badly. This is the heart of God and the person of Jesus and his compassion flows like a never ending stream. And you know what? These blind men receive that compassion and we read that they follow him. In closing, the story is a real life account of Jesus's physical restoring of the sight of two blind men. And we read again that they follow him. We can't say for sure if both these men faithfully received Christ here. So we look at this story and go, man, there are a lot of, of, there's a lot of evidence that these men not only received physical sight, but spiritual sight. And we have good reason to believe that. 
In the Gospel of Mark and Luke, we read the same story with minor differences in detail. And the biggest difference is that Mark and Luke's account of this, they only highlight one beggar. They actually give his name. His name is Bartimaeus. And they focus in on this one man who is, in fact, in our story today, who is crying out for mercy and received healing, physical healing from Jesus. And it is believed that he is known in the early church by the apostles and that he's loved by Jesus. Our evidence of this man receiving Jesus as his Lord and Savior is made evident to the fact that he was known in the church, that he is recorded in the Bible, and that he is there for us to see and for the early church to see that God is good, that God is merciful, and God is mighty to save. Why do I bring that up in our conclusion? Well, number one, because it's amazing. We should celebrate when anyone comes to faith in Jesus. Amen? But the reason why I'm ending with this is because it points us to the greatest demonstration of compassion the world has ever seen. And it wasn't the healing of Bartimaeus' sight. It was the healing of his heart. It was the healing of our hearts. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for us. Christ's compassion led him to the cross where he took our suffering and our pain and our judgment and our sin to the grave forever. Church, let us encourage those who need mercy to seek it while it can be found. Let us proclaim the gospel so that many would receive and believe in Jesus and forsake their sin. Let us glorify the Father in our prayers of faith. And last, let us worship Jesus for the infinite, unrestrained compassion that he has shown us and continues to show us every single day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your compassion. I mean, I think about the compassion that I've felt over my life. And there have been moments of deep compassion. And we can all think about that. But to know, God, that we can't even fathom the way your compassion looks towards us. Thank you for telling us about it. Thank you for showing it in the pages of Scripture. And thank you for letting us experience it by saving us. Help us to worship Jesus every single day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.